Occasionally when I preach around the PCA churches in Chicago, they'll introduce the preacher by saying where, where in relation to Chicago uh, he's from. They'll say, oh, this is so-and-so from uh, the west side, the east side, the south side, the north side. And they usually say, this is Ian Hammond. He's coming from, he's from the north side of Chicago at Evanston. And I get up and I usually say, I live and I serve on the north side, but I'm from the south side of Chicago, the far, far south side, Mississippi. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's so good to be at Londell. We look forward to being here every Christmas to visit with Hannah and her family, well, to visit Hannah's family. And... um, I hope, you, I hope you had a Merry Christmas. It's, uh, it's truly a great joy to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. Thank you to the session at Londell for allowing me to proclaim God's Word. We'll, we'll, we will be in the book of Philippians chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and join me there. This is a, a letter, as you may recall, from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, and this is an exemplary church. This is like Paul's Lawndale. This is the church that partnered with Paul from the very beginning, and this is also the church that took care of Paul's needs while he was in prison. And so as you read this letter, you get a sense of a great bond that exists between Paul and the church at Philippi. His love for them is evident, just as evident is their love for him. And so in our verses this morning, we will see that Paul's love for this church sometimes was expressed in defending them from false teaching and encouraging them to stay true to the gospel in which they partner. And so our verses this morning are going to be verses 2 through 16 of chapter 3. We'll read those verses and then we'll pray together. This is God's word. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would do a supernatural work in our hearts this morning. Make Jesus of surpassing worth to us, we pray in his name. Amen. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler along I stood. I looked down one as far as I could until it bent into the undergrowth. Those are the famous lines from the opening stanza of Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. Allegedly, this poem was written as a joke for Edward Thomas, a hiking buddy of Robert Frost. Nevertheless, it was this poem in part that inspired his friend to enlist and fight for his country during World War I, where he would ultimately lose his life. Though the meaning of the poem is contested, I remember reading this as a high school student and being struck by the fact that this person, faced with a fork in the road, chose to take the one less traveled, presumably the more difficult path. The last line of the poem says, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I took Frost to mean that the character in his poem took the more difficult path, then to learn the counterintuitive truth that though it is the more difficult path, it is the far, far better one. The Apostle Paul himself faced a fork in the road. He faced this on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. He was on a road up until this point. He was on the road of righteousness by means of the law. But then he encountered the risen Lord Jesus in the bright light of God's glory. And like the character in this poem, he discerned that he could not go down both the road of the law and the road of Christ. And so he chose Christ, the more difficult path for him, but the far, far better one to be sure. Now here in Philippians chapter three, the Philippians face a proverbial fork as well. They can either take the road of the Judaizers who teach others to think about their relationship with God in terms of confidence in the flesh, or they can imitate the way Paul thinks about his relationship with God. And so in verse 15, when Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way, we see that his main goal in this section is to get the Philippians to think like him. He wants them to embrace his mindset, which conforms to the truth of the gospel. Now, the fact that Paul includes this argument in this letter to this church attests to the fact that even the faithful can drift into wrong thinking about their relationship with God. And so maybe in this new year, the change we need most is a change of mind, a change in the way that we think about our Christian's life, our Christian lives. In these verses, Paul gives us three ways that we can imitate the way he thinks. And I want to consider these three together this morning. First, he says to revise the balance sheet. 
Second, pursue knowing Christ. And third, use the proper metaphor for the Christian life. So let's look at these three together. First, to imitate Paul, we must revise the balance sheet. Now, the false teachers that Paul is counteracting this morning, sorry, in in the beginning of our letter this morning, are the Judaizers. And they are teaching the Philippians that they need to be circumcised in order to become or at least maintain righteousness before God. And so Paul sees this move as a move away from the gospel to a religion of self-confidence. And his most powerful argument against the message of the false teachers is this. What they say counts. Paul himself has in surplus. He doesn't just have circumcision, he has it on the eighth day. He isn't just of Israel, he is of the faithful tribe of Benjamin. He doesn't just have the law, he is the Pharisee. He is righteous, he is zealous, he is blameless. It would seem to be to Paul's great gain to embrace the message of the false teachers because by doing so, he could elevate himself above everyone else. But instead, he revises the balance sheet. Verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is using an accounting metaphor here. I'm married to an accountant, so, uh, but I didn't get much advice on this, but I think this is an accounting metaphor. What he is doing is he's adding things up. He places things in the gain category. What does he place? Everything that he inherited by his noble birth and everything that he achieved by his great efforts. But then, seeing Christ, he takes all of those supposed gains and moves them into the loss category, considering Christ alone to be gain. Now, what does it mean for him to count these things as loss? Well, it means that he rejects the inheritance of his birth and the achievements of his effort as grounds for boasting. Verse three, Paul says, we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It also means that he rejects them as the grounds by which he can be made right with God. Verse nine, we are found in him, not having a righteousness of our own. Gordon Fee, the brilliant Greek scholar comments on this section, Paul here implies that the gaining of Christ requires the loss of all former things. To be rich in Christ means to be rich in him alone, not him plus other gains. For Paul, it is a theological truism that grace and self-confidence are in radical antithesis. Grace plus anything else cancels out grace. And so the question that arises here for us is, do we have a proper relationship to our inheritance of birth in our achievements of effort? Have we counted them as loss? You know, the default of the human heart is to turn these things into idols. We boast, we glory in inheritance and achievement. We place our confidence in them. So how can we be sure that we have counted them as loss? You know, I think there could be several diagnostics, but these two questions have been personally helpful to me. 
First, how do I respond to criticism? Those who are boasting in achievement will find themselves overly sensitive and easily offended when people offer criticism. After a particularly frank sermon one morning, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the 19th century London Baptist preacher, faced some criticism from an older lady in the congregation that morning. She approached him after the service and scolded him in front of everyone saying, you are the most unholy preacher I have ever heard. And after she said her piece, Spurgeon calmly leaned over to the person next to him and said, and she doesn't even know the half of it. Charles Spurgeon was also the man who wrote to a friend who was dealing with unfair criticism these encouraging words. Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he considers you to be. Spurgeon, in response to someone calling him a name, if you Google Charles Spurgeon's image, he resembles that of Santa Claus. He responded this way, you can call me what you like, just don't call me late to dinner. Maybe having a, a sense of humor about yourself could be another diagnostic. Spurgeon understood that what mattered most was not what he had achieved, but Christ Jesus through whom he had the righteousness of God. Therefore, the criticism of others mattered, but did not matter as much to him. What area, uh, area of achievement are you most tender to criticism? Could it be that you still have that in the gain category? The second question is, what is it that pulls me into relationship with others? You know, often things that we largely inherit, such as culture, nationality, even politics, race, are more magnetic than a shared love of Jesus. You know, we should feel a greater kinship with a Nigerian who loves the Lord Jesus Christ than our neighbor who could care less about the Lord Jesus. You know, but shares the same, I don't know, political outlook, same college background or social status. You know, from an earthly perspective, Paul had more in common with the Judaizers than the Philippians. In fact, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and yet who was he in greater fellowship with? You know, the Philippians sent goods and people to care for Paul while he was in prison. They prayed for Paul. Paul prayed for them. They worried about Paul. Paul worried about them. Though their backgrounds were different in many respects, their shared love for Jesus Christ brought them together. What is it that we find most attractive about others? What is it about others that makes us want to be in their fellowship? You know, one of the greatest evidences that we have gained Christ is that we have a love for those who love him. Now, Paul does not limit his losses to inheritance and achievement. In fact, he doesn't limit them at all. Verse eight, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You know, Paul isn't just thinking of Christ here as the source of righteousness, he is that. He is thinking him as the source of all joy. 
He is speaking of Christ in very personal and intimate terms. He says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul looked at Jesus and saw one who was of surpassing worth. And because he saw Jesus in such a way, he counted all things as rubbish in comparison and willingly suffered the loss of all things. You know, what is most striking about Paul's suffering to me as you read the book of Acts is in most cases, it was chosen suffering. He could have avoided the shipwrecks, the uh, beatings, the jail time, the alienation, the ridicule, the shame, the persecution by simply just giving up. But he looked at Christ and he appraised him as worth all the losses that he would endure. You know, persecution reveals what we prize. What we love, we willingly suffer for. You know, what would it, what would we be in danger of, what would make us in danger of giving up Christ? Is it prosperity? Is it pleasure? Is it prestige? Paul says to take everything in advance and move it over into the lost category. He says he counts all things as rubbish. This word rubbish in the Greek is a purposely provocative term. It's the same word that we use for refuse, refuse or for excrement. When placed in comparison to Noah and Christ, Paul says everything is garbage. He says go ahead in advance and revise that balance sheet. Second, to imitate Paul, we must pursue knowing Christ. Now, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that Paul was the greatest Christian who ever lived. He was the apostle, right? He, his writing comprises a quarter of the New Testament. He was the one who basically pioneered this missionary movement that would eventually take over the entire Roman Empire that exists literally in every country in this modern world today. Paul was truly great. And if anyone could lay claim to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, it would be the Apostle Paul. And in fact, Paul did know Christ. Look at me beginning in verse 8, the second half. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In a very real sense, Paul could have said that I have, I, I, I knew Christ, I have already gained Christ after he encountered him on the road to Damascus. What does it mean to know Christ? Verse nine, it means to be found in him. It means to be united to the Lord Jesus by faith. In the opening of this letter, Paul addresses this letter to those in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And it is in this knowing of Christ that we see here we are justified. It is in this knowing of Christ that we receive a righteousness not our own. This is a once for all decisive act in the past. Paul knew Christ. He was found in him in the past and yet he aims to know Christ more and more in the present. Look with me at verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Here we see that knowing Christ 
in justification in the past is for the purpose of knowing Christ in sanctification in the present. Sanctification is simply that process by which we know Christ more and more and become more like him in this life. And Paul says we know Christ primarily in two ways in this life in verse 10. The power of his resurrection and quite literally in the Greek, the fellowship of his suffering. The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, Paul says in another place, is given to those who look to the Lord Jesus by faith. The power of the resurrection is simply the spirit who is poured out on all flesh as a result of Christ being risen from the dead. You know, this is why the means of grace are so essential to the work of sanctification. It is through the word and worship that our eyes are drawn upward by the Spirit of God to perceive the beauty, the glory, the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, some see faith in Christ as kind of the intro to the Christian life. You have faith in Christ, you're a Christian now, and now you go on and do other more important things. But Paul says here, that knowing Christ by faith is the preoccupation of the entirety of the Christian life. And yet we also know Christ by the often overlooked fellowship of his suffering. Tim Keller in his book called Walking with God in Pain and Suffering says the following about suffering in the scripture. Some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct wrongful patterns of behavior. You can think of the case of Jonah imperiled by the storm. Some suffering is given not to correct past wrongs, but to prevent future ones, as is the case with uh, Joseph being sold into slavery. And then he says, but some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God ardently for himself alone and so discover the ultimate peace and freedom. Paul draws our attention here to this third use of suffering. It is through suffering that we come to know Christ Jesus more and more. In another place, Keller says, sometimes we don't know Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. Paul knew Christ in the past. He pursues Christ in the present, and he does so so that he will know Christ fully in the future. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul speaks of the resurrection this way in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, right now we look into a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully as I have been fully known. Knowing Christ in sanctification is for knowing him in the resurrection, in the future. This not yet future is what Paul is longing for, looking for, and looking to attain by any means possible. In Paul's mind, whether it happened with his death in prison, his death later on, or Christ Jesus' return at the end of the age, he would attain the resurrection of the dead by any means. You know, some see a lack of certainty here in Paul's words, but just as Paul was sure that God would bring to completion the good work that he started in the Philippians, Paul knew that God would finish his good work in him. He knew Christ already, and he would know Christ fully in the resurrection. Until then, he made it his priority 
to pursue knowing Christ more and more in the present. This is the substance of the Christian life. Third and lastly, to imitate Paul, we must use the proper metaphor for the Christian life. Based upon the fact that none of us have attained full knowledge in Christ, Paul says we are to have a particular mindset in this life. And so in order to describe the way he thinks about his Christian life, Paul uses a vivid metaphor to capture his mindset, his, his philosophy, his approach. On April 19th, 2014, 36,000 runners laced up their shoelaces for the Boston Marathon. This was the 118th one. And this was significant, remember, because it was in the previous year that the Boston bombings had occurred and three people lost their lives and many more were injured. And as you can imagine, the day was full of emotion and it became exuberant when we discovered who won the race. For the first time since 1983, an American won the Boston Marathon. With his name, with the names of the victims written on his chest, a man named Meb reached the goal first. And when he reached that finish line, the crowd went crazy. People were chanting, USA, USA, USA. He lifted his hands in victory, not because he had just won a race only, but because he had become a symbol for American perseverance. You know, is it not striking that when Paul uses a metaphor to sum up his way of life, he uses running a race? Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize. You know, this Greek word for press on is, is dioko, which is defined as moving rapidly and decisively towards an objective, to hasten, to run, to pursue. It kind of speaks to the tenacity in which Paul lived his life. He was always seeking to move forward, to press on, to run, to pursue, to reach his goal, to win his prize. You know, I'm curious if you could reflect over the past year, what metaphor could you use to describe your Christian life, the way you thought about it? You know, as I personally reflected on this question and reflected on the mindset and life of Paul, I was greatly humbled and greatly challenged. Sometimes I think the most fitting metaphor for my own Christian life is the lazy river. Are you familiar with the lazy river? When I remember going to a water park as a kid and there was this pool that kind of circled the entire park and there was like this gentle current and people sat on their floats as they drifted around the park. And as a kid, I thought this was incredibly boring. But sometimes this is exactly the metaphor for the way I live my Christian life. There is a slackness, a complacency, and dare I say, laziness. And yet what Paul was, he was a man who married the sovereign grace of God with working, with pressing on. He says in verse 12, I press on to make it my own. He says to the Philippians in the previous chapter, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now Paul is giving us this metaphor for us to imitate. He wants us to think this way. So how do we press on in the Christian life? I want to end with four words of application. First, recognize that you have not arrived yet in the Christian life. I like the way John Piper says it. He says, develop a holy dissatisfaction. Paul in verse 12 says, I have not already obtained this or am already perfect. 
Piper goes on, stand in front of the mirror of the word and recognize that you have not yet arrived. The hearty admission of our spiritual imperfections is the starting point for pursuing God. You know, this isn't so much for the purpose of awakening shame as it is to awaken spiritual hunger. This isn't meant to, show, to shift the focus entirely on you, but to shift it to the object of your desire. You know, Paul quickly moves, it seems, from I am not perfect to I press on to make it my own. And so should we. Second, don't look back. Paul says in verse 13 that he forgets what lies behind. Now, I don't know a single thing about sprinting, but I played high school football, and I remember our coach telling our running backs, when you're running with the football, don't look behind you. It slows you down, look straight to the goal line, and press on forward. You know, there is a way of looking back in the Christian life, or even the life of a church, to, you know, the glory days when you accomplish many great things and the Lord did a great work in your midst and you made much progress in your faith. There's a way of looking back at those things and kind of being discouraged in your pursuit in the present, you know, to become content, complacent with how far you have come. And there's even a way of looking back at your past failures that can bog you down in the Christian life. You know, it is a fact that we have all failed God in tremendous ways. This is true of every single one of our heroes in the Bible except for the Lord Jesus. But there is a way of being preoccupied with the past that can be a bit unhealthy. You know, I'm not saying that if there are things we need to seek repentance for and even reconciliation and make things right in our past, we shouldn't do that. But what I am saying is that we should not allow our past to set the terms of our future, to box us in. In sum, Paul is saying, look back only for the purpose of moving forward. Otherwise, forget what's behind. Third, strain to what is ahead. What is ahead. Verse 13, he strains, Paul says, he strains to what is ahead. In other words, be motivated by the reward before you and exert yourself what is Paul looking forward to? Verse 14, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The call that Paul received on the road to Damascus was into communion with the living God through knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord, and he pressed on to the finish line, which would be the fullness and consummation of that communion. Look to this prize, work towards this, Paul says, with every effort, live out your calling to know and serve Christ with your life. In the 1992 Olympic Games in Spain, the British runner Derek Redman lined up for a 400 meter race. You know the nature of Olympics. Everything that he'd been living for would come down to this. He had trained, he had trained intensely for several years for this very moment. He launched off his blocks and every sprinter's greatest nightmare happened to him. He pulled a hamstring and he toppled down to the track in tremendous pain. Refusing to accept this, he got up on his feet and began to hobble very pitifully toward the finish line. But before anyone could stop him, his father scaled the retaining wall, jumped out onto the track, ran to his son, and Derek leaned on his father as they made their way down the track. The crowds stood and cheered them on as they crossed the finish line together. 
You know, like all analogies, the analogy of running a race can be taken too far. In this race that we are running, we are not competing against others. We're running together with one another. And everyone who finishes this race wins the prize. And your freedom to finish this race doesn't come down to any inherent ability that you might have. It comes down to this one thing, and this one thing alone. Verse 12, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You know, the reality is, is we're all like Derek Redman. We run with a limp. We, we hobble. And the only way we would ever finish this race, anyone would ever finish this race, is that Christ Jesus himself went before us. He exchanged gain for loss. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord Jesus Christ finished his race. He secured his prize. God the Father bestowed upon him the name above all names. And he did this for you. He did this to make you his own. And the only way that we would reach to what lies ahead is by leaning on him. By his grace, by the power of his spirit, we will reach to what's ahead. And if we do lean on him, we most certainly will reach it. Let us pray.